Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone. Usually, I'm back there behind you all, so it's kind of a change of pace to be in front of you all. Um, But, so, it's been almost four years since I've been the pastoral intern here at Crosspoint, which is crazy to think about. Um, If you don't know, I've been involved with the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship Program, so it's just like a bunch of local, like-minded churches that come together. Uh, I've taken language classes, theology classes, and just about nearing the finish line now. Uh, I have a couple of church history classes left, and then some electives that I'm fulfilling through uh, biblical counseling certification with ACBC. Um, but uh, it wasn't easy to decide to come here four years ago, four and a half years ago. Uh, like my last year of college in Michigan, um, I had like this bit of an ex- existential crisis, and like I couldn't get out of bed most days. And I'm sure most of us have experienced something like that. You got your like senior year of high school crisis where you're like, where do I go to college? Should I go to college? What should I study? Or where should I work? And then you got your like midway through college crisis. Did I choose the right major? Am I getting enough experience? Am I even learning anything useful? And then like me, your end of the year, last year, senior year of college, like what kind of career should I have? Should I go to graduate school? Where should I live? Am I even prepared for real life? And then a few years after that, you got your quarter-life crisis. Did I choose the right career? Is what I'm doing fulfilling? And then you got your midlife crisis. Is that all that life has to offer? Am I experiencing life to the fullest? Should I go out and buy this brand new car? Am I accomplishing the goals that I set for my life? And then later on, we got our late-life crisis. Did anything I do these past 60, 70 years of my life matter? Was any of it worth it? Uh, so for me, that last year of college, I was struggling with whether to pursue a career in computer programming, go to seminary, uh, go on staff or intern with crew, come here back home to Sioux Falls and intern at Crosspoint, and a whole lot of other options. And on top of trying to figure out what God's plan for my life was, uh, I had like slipping classwork, ton of different responsibilities that were falling through the cracks. And like some other problems going on in my life, my friends' lives, my family's lives. And I was overwhelmed and I wanted to die. But God, aren't those two little words wonderful? But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, but God used that time in my life to teach me, uh, to train me, to teach me to trust him above anything else, that he's sovereign, he's in control, I'm not, that he's good, that he's loving, and that he gives true hope when the hope that the world offers is just empty. It overpromises, it underdelivers. You see, so often our inner struggles, our turmoils that bring us to despair, It's because our hope is in the wrong place. We've misplaced it. It's in created things. It's not in our creator. We think that this woman or that man is going to bring us hope and purpose for our lives, that a career over here or over there will fulfill us, or that this food or this house or that car, if I could only be cancer-free and never sick again, then I'll finally be happy. 
But what we're going to see today in today's passage is that our purpose in life is to make our hope in Jesus Christ known. Uh, So please stand as I read the word of God. Uh, Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. God, fill me with your spirit, that I may make known the truth found in your word, plain and evident. God, fill us all with your spirit, Enliven our hearts to your word. Comfort us in our afflictions. Rebuke us in our rebellion. Point us to the hope found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Transform us into the image of Christ from one degree to another. And motivate us to action in our obedience and application of your word. Amen. You may be seated. So before we start making our way through the passage that we just read, 
Let's back up just a bit to get a bit of a historical context for the letter to the Colossians. Uh, so Colossae is a city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Greek. It's about 100 miles inland from the coastal city of Ephesus. Um, Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae, uh, but rather this man named Epaphras did. Um, Epaphras likely came to faith during Paul's time in Ephesus when he spent three years there from about AD 52 to 55 during his third missionary journey. Um, and then Epaphras, he later went home and started preaching the gospel and planting churches in Colossae and other nearby cities like Laodicea and Hierapolis. Um, and then at the time of writing, Paul was, he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, he wrote this about the same time he wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon, about AD 62. And as he was there, uh, Epaphras also came to Rome and likely told Paul about this false teaching that was endangering the church in Colossae. And Paul addresses that in chapter 2 of this letter. And then later on, he sends these three letters, the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. Uh, he sends them, delivers them through Tychicus and Onesimus. And so they travel these hundreds of miles by ship and land uh, from Rome to Ephesus and then on to Colossae. And if we look at Colossians, as often with Paul's letters, it's split into two parts. So Paul often, he has his first section, which is full of deep theological truths, and then his second section, which is the so what? Okay, so we take all these theological truths and apply them to our lives. How do we do that? So if we think of Romans 1 through 11 leads to Romans 12 through 16, or Ephesians 1 through 3 leads right to chapters 4 through 6. And so in Colossians, we've got these two sections, two main sections. The first, teaching some theological truths, and the second with direct application, with commands to do. So this first section is what we just read, chapters 1, verses 1 through 23. And then we have the second section, which is chapters 1, verse 24, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. It's kind of the bulk of the letter. Um, this first section that we read shows Christ as preeminent, which just means he's above all, he's surpassing everything else, he's worth more than anything there else there is. And he's sufficient for the spiritual Christian life to bring us to maturity. And that's what the second section shows that shows how to live our lives because Christ is preeminent and sufficient, how to live our lives in maturity out of this hope found in Jesus Christ. So here's just a few examples from some verses in Colossians uh, just to show like the whole point of the letter. So chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Or chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then chapter 3, verse 10, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then in his closing of the letter, in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, and fully assured in all the will of God. 
So the section that we read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 23, it lays the groundwork for the rest of the letter, leading right to Paul's final application in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4, where he says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So this is what we're going to see here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. That is, it's going to lead, it's going to lay the groundwork right to that final application and the whole point of the letter. And if we had to summarize it, we'd just say, our purpose in life is to make our hope in Jesus Christ known. Known to the world through our actions, which we'll see. So let's start by looking at how Paul begins this letter. So in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. His whole identity is in Christ. It's not of himself, in and of himself, but it's by the will of God. And he says, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. This identity, this union with Christ that forms a spiritual family where God the Father adopts people into his family to be his own sons and daughters, that those who were once in darkness are now in light, that those who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, as it says, verse 21, are now called saints, holy ones, righteous, justified, cleansed, by the blood of Christ. So then right after that, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what is this grace? What is this undeserving goodness that God the Father gives his children in Christ? So look down in verses 12 through 14, where it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So then, what is, what is this peace that he mentions? What is this peace, this shalom, where the lion lays down with the lamb, where there's no enmity or division between God and man? Look down at verses 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So as we sang last, last week with the song, Grace and Peace, Grace and Peace, oh how can this be? The matchless king of all paid the blood price for me. Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. Oh, what an amazing mystery. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. That this amazing grace and peace, the saints, the believers in Jesus Christ, who put their faith in him, repented from their sins, who once were evil, debased, demonic enemies of God, treasonous rebels who put themselves on the throne of God, that these people God made instantly right with him, declared righteous, declared good, 
declared justified for all time, every sin, past, present, and future, is imputed onto Christ when he was betrayed, when he was abandoned by his friends, he was accused, he was condemned, he was mocked, he was beaten and flogged, he was crucified by man. But most of all, when the Father he turned his face away from his beloved Son and poured on him the wrath that we deserve, and upon us is imputed the righteousness of Christ. Like this, this is our hope. This is the foundation of our faith. And because I find theologically rich songs like stir my heart to, dep- to praise Jesus Christ, I'm going to quote this one more song. So, <clears throat> like a lamb before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. Like a lion, if he had, then we would all have been devoured. Like a man, he tasted death. He drank destruction to the dregs. Like a king, his will advanced. He marched on like the prophet said. Lion man of Judah, let your wrath pass over me. Lion man of Judah, will you climb upon that tree and be crushed for the sins that I have transgressed, torn limb from limb, now stricken, oppressed. Lion man of Judah, will you climb up on that tree? Lion man of Judah, will you die? Die for me. Weep no more, the wrath is on the tree. Weep no more, there's no more left for me. This, this is our God. This is our Lord and Savior. This is the grace and peace that he lavishes upon all those who would turn from serving self to serving our King, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. That when we live in this world struggling to find ourselves, to figure out who we are, the response of the Christian is to say that my identity is Christ, that he's mine and I am his. Now, we, we could stop there, just stop at these first three verses. We could soak in that goodness and truth. And sometimes that's just what we need, that reminder of who we are, who we are in Christ. That's not where Paul stops, and that's not where we're going to stop today. That wonderful hope is meant to lead us somewhere. Remember, our purpose in life is to make our hope in Jesus Christ known. Let's look at the next few verses then. These next couple verses are the focal point of this whole section. So it says here in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what has Paul heard about the Colossians? He's heard of their faith and love. Now, we'll circle back to like what that looks like in a few minutes. But faith in Greek is just pistis or belief or faith or trust. But how can you hear of someone's belief? Isn't that just in their minds? And hear of love, isn't that just in our hearts? How can you hear someone's mind and hear someone's heart from afar? He's in Rome, they're in Colossae. It's because the Colossians put their hope into action. They have acts of faith and acts of love that make known the inner being of who they are. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, 
And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So now we have to ask the question, if they're making known their hope by their acts of love, their acts of faith, through this action, what then is, is their hope? What does the verse say? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what's, what's that hope? Let's look at the next half of that verse. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So this hope laid up for us in heaven, it says right after that, it's the word of truth, the gospel. It's easy to be simplistic about what the gospel is, which is, gospel literally just means good news. So it's easy to be simplistic about that is why it's the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, or it's Jesus living the perfect life that I failed to keep, his death on the cross taking the penalty I deserve, and his resurrection showing he fully paid the penalty of my sin and guaranteeing my eventual resurrection. Like, this is all good. It's all true. And the gospel is simple, but it's also so much more, with so much more to unpack, and as we'll continue to see. So now, what is this gospel? What is this good news doing? What's it say? It's spreading throughout the world, bearing fruit and increasing. And we see this phrasing all over the Bible of bearing fruit. We saw it in the passage of Luke I just mentioned, where the, the good man, the righteous man, he bears good fruit. Um, and he talks about similar verses all throughout the Gospels, or there's verses where we're commanded to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Or we see in Revelation 22 of this image of the new heaven and new earth, Along this river of life are trees of life, planted, yielding fruit, and bringing healing to the nations. Or, so it's bearing fruit, it's increasing for all the nations, going throughout all the world. Or we see the same thing in Ezekiel 47, where the trees alongside the water flowing from this, this new temple, this fruit never withers or fails, but the fruit is fresh and for good and for food and the trees' leaves for healing. Or in what Becca read at the start of the service from Psalm 1, where the righteous man is like a tree planted by stream of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Like This, this imagery, it flows throughout the whole Bible, but it, it starts in Genesis 1 through 3, where like not only are there trees for, that are good, good for eating, um, bearing fruit in the garden, but mankind is also to be fruitful and multiply. And in fact, the language here, it's using the similar language, especially in the Greek, um, in Colossians, where it's meant to remind us of mankind's original purpose. That where it said in Colossians, just as in the whole world, it, the word of, group, the word of truth, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. So if we look in Genesis 1.28, mankind was told, be fruitful or bearing fruit and multiply, increasing, and fill the earth or the whole world 
and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this, this purpose is to fill the entire world with worshipers of God, with image bearers, as like the verse right before in Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And to, like, not only are they to bear the image, but they're to carry out God's rule upon the earth. Except we all know how that turns out. Adam fails. And because of his failure as the head of humanity, death spreads to all mankind for all men's sin. The next, throughout the Old Testament, we see this purpose, this original purpose of mankind. It gets expanded and built upon. But mankind keeps relying on ourselves and we keep failing over and over again. So a few chapters later, Genesis 9, Noah too is told to be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What does he do? He goes and gets drunk and makes a fool of himself. Or Abraham, where like the same promise is expanded upon. He's given this promise of a land where nations would come from him and his offspring would be innumerable, that he'd be fruitful, he would be multiplied, and that throughout him, all the nations, the whole world would be blessed. And God repeats his covenant with Isaac, his son, and then Jacob. But then when Israel, Moses is leading Israel into the promised land through the wilderness, not only does Israel start making idols, they grumble, they complain, they distrust their Lord, their God, who just rescued them from slavery. Until because of their sin, because of their rebellion, they have to wander around until this whole older generation dies off. And not only Israel, but Moses too, he's their leader, he sinned in impatience and anger, and he doesn't even get to enter the promised land. Then later on we have David, who's given this promise of a son who would have a reign of peace and rest, of a kingdom with no end. And what does David do four chapters later? He commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband. And his son Solomon, he breaks every single law that was set up in Deuteronomy for Israelite kings and eventually leading all of Israel into idolatry. And then after him, the kingdom is split in two to the northern and southern kingdoms, and both kingdoms slowly spiral down immorally until they're conquered and exiled, Israel by Assyria and Judah by Babylon. But that's not where the story ends. Eventually, we all know, there comes a new head of humanity, a new and last Adam, Jesus. All the promise of, of God find their yes, finally in him. And he's able to fully live out this commands of God, of this purpose that he set out for mankind, that he can reflect the image of God perfectly. As we see in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. And he does this throughout the whole world, that this image of God becomes known. And he's able to do this not only because he's fully man, like us, but also because he's fully God, that He's actually able to keep these commands. And the Gospel of John calls him the Word of God. And this Word of God, this Word of truth brings a gospel, brings good news, brings a kingdom 
that is spreading throughout all the world, bearing fruit and increasing, that creates a new humanity that has his righteousness, and this new humanity is able to reflect the image of God through all the earth, as Paul writes here in Colossians, that the gospel is being spread. So Jesus, as the word of truth, Jesus Christ is spreading throughout the world, bearing fruit and increasing, making many righteous, filling the world with image bearers of God. And he commands us to do the same um, through our union with him. He makes man's original commission back in Genesis into a new a new kind of command in the Great Commission, as we see in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, bearing fruit and increasing. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if we go back to these verses in Colossians, where it says here in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So who, who is this hope? Who is this word of truth? Who is this gospel, this good news? He's Christ. Christ is our hope. And then later on, verse 15 says he's the head of all humanity, of all creation. Imagine that, the head of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the inheritor of all creation, the creator himself. All things were made through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. So not only is he the head of all creation, the verses right after that shows us he's the head of all new creation. That he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything that he might be preeminent, that he would be surpassing all else, completely worthy, completely valuable, worth more than anything we can think of. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That he is this new temple, this new place of worship. And in him he reconciles and makes peace by the blood of his cross. So Christ, our hope, reconciles us by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, it says. So in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He delivers us from the domain of darkness into his own kingdom of light. And so we're counted as his brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. And as brothers and sisters of Christ, we share in his inheritance. He's the one with the rights of the firstborn to inherit the earth and to rule the earth. And yet us as his brothers and sisters are co-heirs with Christ. He's gone to prepare a place for us laid up in heaven, a new heaven and new earth. When, that he will rule when he comes back again. And there, believers, followers of Christ like, will be in his presence forevermore. But not only will we be in his presence, but will reign and rule with him. Where the streets are paved with gold, where there is no sickness, sin, or disease. Where as, like right now, believers are counted as righteous, counted as without sin before the eyes of God. There, we will be without sin. Not just counted as ones without sin. 
There will no longer be any sin in that new heaven and new earth. And yet this is all just a taste of our hope, of Christ, the small measure of the gospel, of this good news. And like we could talk about more and more about this great high Christology in verses 15 through 20. And I wish we could continue talking about it more and more. I don't think we have time for that. We could talk about it for years, centuries, millennia, and we would never even exhaust, never even scratch the depths of the beauty of who he is, of this word, of truth. So then, if Christ is our great hope, if Christ is our foundation, where does our hope lead us? So it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, what did they do? Paul has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that they have for all the saints. So this is our purpose in life, to make known the hope we have in Jesus Christ through our acts of faith and love done out of obedience and thanksgiving to him who accomplished everything for us. He, he did it all. We, don't, we can't even add anything to it. And so then we have to ask, what do these acts of faith, these acts of love, what, what do they look like? So let's look down at verses 9 through 12. We don't have to look any further than that. Although Paul expands upon that in the rest, the rest of the book of Colossians. Um, so as we see our hope in greater magnitude, our faith and love, they only increase. When there's lack of faith and lack of love in our lives, it's because we've misplaced our hope. We've replaced the one who surpasses all with temporary pleasures and created things that overpromise and underdeliver. So if we look at what these acts of faith look like, let's start by looking at verse 9. So it says, It filling or filled with the knowledge of his will. So then what is God's will? First Thessalonians 4, 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is the one degree to another, this long marathon, this slow transformation of looking more and more like Jesus Christ. And this leads to verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so we act out of obedience, stepping forward in faith, trusting that as we work, God's at work in us. As it says in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, that it's Christ at work in us. So we work, trusting that he's at work in us. And then it says in verse 9, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So where, where is spiritual wisdom? Where is spiritual understanding found? Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. In Colossians 2, just a few verses later, in verse 3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That to grow in our knowledge of Christ, we grow in our knowledge of his word. Spending time in prayerful study and reading of our Bibles. <clears throat> and then if we look at verses 11 and 12, it says that the acts of faith look like endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. This joy, this giving thanks, it's not just when everything's easy and all is right in the world. It says when we have to endure, when we have to be patient, when we just have to trust that the Lord is at work, that he is in control. Look at the believers in Hebrews 10. 
where the author tells them that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they themselves, and so do we, had a better possession and an abiding one. When all sorts of sin, pain, sorrow, death, and hell break out in our lives, in the world, and it will, like we trust that this momentary affliction, and it is, it's just temporary, that it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians. So if that's what these acts of faith look like, they look like stepping out in faith, knowing that God is at work in us, so we work in our obedience, that we spend time in prayerful study of the word, growing in our wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And we just trust, we endure with patience, with joy and thanksgiving. Um, so if that's what the acts of faith look like, what do the acts of love look like? So look, look at verse 10. It says, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So these acts of love are every good work, every good work to our neighbor. And we complete these acts of love, these acts of good work towards Everyone, everyone, no matter how different they are, they may speak a different language, they may look different than us, no matter how rich or poor they are, no matter if they're in prison or they're free, no matter if they respect us or if they mistreat us, no matter if they're kind to us or they mock us and hate us, no matter if they've helped us sometime in the past or they literally want to kill us, no matter if they grew up here or they grew up in some far off and foreign land. Like Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Jesus commands, he commands his followers in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what did Christ do for us? He laid his life down for his enemies, for us. How easy then it should be to speak kind words and encourage the manager or boss who screams at us, to invite over and share a meal with the neighbor who mistreats your property, plays his music too loud, or never even looks you in the eye, or to reconcile with and serve and submit to each other in the church. Like these acts of love are showing the world their need for our Savior by our love for others because of his love for us. And not only do we do like, these acts, these good works and deeds, but so too do we speak. That we speak the truth and love, even if it's hard to hear, even if they reject or revile us, even if we're thrown in prison like Paul or martyred. Like, it's an act of love to declare the mystery of Christ, telling others this good news. And not only should we declare the mystery of Christ to non-believers, but we should declare it to each other, Encouraging and edifying one another, rebuking and correcting one another. But in all things, always pointing each other towards Christ, towards our hope, towards our foundation. And so how do we accomplish these acts of faith, these acts of love? 
Look at verse 11. We must be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. It's not in and of ourselves. We have to rely upon the Spirit of God that this empowerment and motivation can only be found as we keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And he, he will constantly point us to Christ through his word, through other believers. And we look to Christ prayerfully and dependent upon our God. For Christ is our hope and he's our only hope. There's nothing else. Look at this warning in verse 23 and heed it. What's it say? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Don't shift. Where, where then is your hope? What is your hope? Is your hope in the fleeting pleasures of this life? Of just the short stretch of dopamine in your brain through pornography, drugs, drunkenness, sexual immorality, or even food? Is there hope in the escapist leisure of the world of entertainment that we see? Is it in the status of wealth, power, prosperity? Or is it in your children's achievements? Or is it in how others speak of you, that they speak well of you? Is that your hope? Or is it, for student, is it success in your sports or school? Or is your hope in this picturesque, peaceful home where everyone's happy and healthy? Maybe it's in a fulfilling job. Or is your hope in Christ? Christ is more valuable and surpasses all else. Like even if something is a good gift of God, it robs us of our joy and spiritual growth if it stops pointing us towards Christ and instead takes his place as our hope. Christ must be our hope above all. And if he is our hope, don't shift from it. Remember the word of truth, the gospel. As it says, just as you originally heard and understood the grace of God and truth, relish in the glory of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross and his life and resurrection. And let that hope overflow into acts of faith and love. Don't hinder and quench the spirit of God from working in your life. Remember what Christ has accomplished for you. And when you feel lost and aimless, wondering what your purpose in life is, remember, our purpose in life is to make our hope in Jesus Christ known. Take heart when you look at your life, when you wonder what to do with it. Take heart with whether you decide to be a nurse, a teacher, a minister, a programmer, a banker, a construction worker. Like whatever you do, you can have this confidence that whatever it is, you can work for the glory of God and make known your hope in him through both deed and word. That our identity and purpose, it's found in Jesus Christ, in him alone. It's what he's accomplished for us. Like Christ plus nothing is everything. So make your hope in Christ known to the world. That, that is our purpose. God, as Paul wrote in his letter and his prayer for the Colossians, we pray the same for us. I pray the same for myself. I need this. Fill me, fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
So we are fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit and increasing in every good work. Strengthen us with your spirit, with all power, according to your glorious might. Help us to endure and to be patient with joy and give us thankful hearts for what you've done for us. And all this we pray and depend upon you, knowing that we cannot accomplish it ourselves. Your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.